0: You know, a really funny thing happened after the sermon last Sabbath. Uh, Somebody came up to me and said, man, I really enjoyed that sermon. Too bad you kept mispronouncing the word. And um, my attempt to be clever backfired a little bit last Sabbath because I, I kept pronouncing the word defrenestation. But the word is actually defenestration. Now, maybe you were none the wiser, but I was a little embarrassed when somebody came up and said, yeah, you weren't saying that right. So I went back and I listened to the sermon, and I mispronounced it about 20 times, so, uh, and I misspelled it, but that I could remedy because I sent uh, Nathan Brosman a corrected slide. So even though I was saying it wrong the entire sermon, did you you notice that, Shirley Rochelle, the whole time? Cheers for not saying something. Really appreciate that. You know, you're one of my son's favorite teachers, but now you're one of my least favorite church members over that. All right. So, today, um, no mispronunciations, I don't think, except for perhaps a few names of kings that are not easy to pronounce. We're going to get started right away, uh, so let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, big day today. It's the Sabbath. We've already been ministered to in so many ways, and Lord, last night's Christmas program was outstanding. The interview with John and Kara really lifted us uh, to, the, to the gates of heaven to realize that, that you are still moving. Of course, we never doubted that you were And Father, the music has been outstanding. And now we're turning our attention to the text, to the word, and we pray that you would illumine our minds and give us a better understanding of who you are and of who we are. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to, well, actually, go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're a visitor here today, we are journeying through the Old Testament. And uh, for those of you that are regulars here, you will notice that 1 Samuel chapter 8 is going significantly backward from where we have been up to this point. And we're not going to start by going right to the text, but I I want you to be there and to be ready because we're going to be there in just a second. Our sermon today is titled, On a Collision Course with Captivity. Nothing to mispronounce there. On a Collision Course with Captivity. And we have two sermons left in our chapter on kings, this Sabbath and next Sabbath, And uh, what I decided to do is I was reading through the Kings and reading through the Chronicles and presented with a problem that we've been presented with from the beginning, and that is that there's just such a breadth of data and material that you just have to try and find some way to systematize it, some way to compartmentalize it and and communicate it in the short time, really, that we have available, given the amount of, of material, the expansive nature of what we're trying to cover. And so what I've decided to do in these last two sermons is to spend today's uh, presentation on Israel all the way down to the ultimate demise and captivity of Israel by Assyria and then next Sabbath we'll take a look at Judah. So today on a collision course with captivity we'll be talking about Israel. We ended our sermon last Sabbath with with this observation. The history of Israel feels like it's spiraling rapidly out of control. It's difficult to avoid that basic sense That it goes from bad to worse, to worse yet, to worse yet. It it gets to the place where you think, how could it get any worse? And we found ourselves at a new low point last Sabbath when uh, King Ahab, under the direct influence of his wife Jezebel, uh, was at the the new low point. We're going to see that again today, that Ahab, as the chronicler says, he committed evil like no one else in all of Israel. He was the new low point for Israel. And yet, even though Israel is spinning and its history is spinning rapidly out of control, the whole time, as you're reading, you have this sense of helplessness because the entire thing feels completely absurd and unnecessary. Because the true God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, is the God of Scripture. And and you just keep looking at, at, at this story or these stories and these various dynasties and their kings and their enterprises and going... Why have the wheels come off so manifestly and so horrifically? And uh, just by way of review, and we're going to do this extensively right now, we're going to talk about the kings of Israel. The first king of Israel, uh, of course, would be uh, Saul. And then we have the three kings of combined Israel, Saul, David, Solomon. Uh, But what we're talking about here is the kings of divided Israel, from Jeroboam to Hosea. And we'll get all the way down to Hosea today. 19 kings, a period that extends roughly 200 years Uh, Ended, as we're going to see today, in Assyrian conquest, and as we mentioned, it doesn't make particularly good children's story material. Actually, there are some good children's stories in this section, but the children's stories do not revolve around the ministry or the life or the uh, rulership of the kings. In fact, I don't think there's a single children's story in these kings, but in the lives of the prophets primarily Elijah and Elisha, and we're going to spend, astonishingly, almost no time today talking about Elisha, even though he is the central figure in 2 Kings, and uh, the reason for that is, again, we're just only a certain amount of time, and I really want to try to create a picture here, a trajectory of the history of the kings of Israel. We're going to start with the first king of composite Israel, the 12 tribes, Saul, And uh, to to try and synthesize all of the information, I've given every king what I'm calling an evil rating. This is entirely subjective, but having read over this uh, material in both Kings and Chronicles and also from Prophets and Kings, I feel fairly well qualified to give an evil rating. And it's a one to four scale, so you can sort of gauge where we're at um, here. I gave Saul an evil rating of uh, three stars, and it should have been three unhappy faces perhaps. He reigned 40 years And I'm going to give a verse for each of these kings. We're going to work our way right through them. Saul, the first king of Israel, it says in 1 Kings chapter 28, verses 16 and 18, Then Samuel said to Saul, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy because you did not obey the voice of the Lord? That's that's how the whole king enterprise, the whole royal enterprise in Israel gets off to a start, this kind of a start. We then were followed up with, Uh, David, who I consider to be a good king, so he's not in this list, okay? One of the only, in fact, we'll see that in just a moment. Then we transition to Solomon. Uh, He reigned 40 years. I give him, perhaps surprising to some, also an evil rating of three. I think there's good biblical reason for that. It says, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that becomes a template. That phrase becomes a recurrent refrain, a chorus, that the chronicler keeps going back to again and again and again, and you're going to see that here. When, when 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 I actually sat down to preach through this, and Jared and I have talked about this, we're faced with a bit of a dilemma. We could preach on the stories, the upbeat, positive, miraculous stories of the prophets, and there are some great ones here, especially Elijah and Elisha, but preaching on the prophets doesn't give us a real feel for the trajectory of the way that Israel's history is going. In fact, if anything, the prophets were speed bumps or obstacles in the way to their uninterrupted downward spiral. Less so in the case of Judah, but certainly in the case of Israel. And so what I decided to do, rather than focusing in on the prophets who were the exception to the rule, I really wanted to hone in on the overall trajectory of, in this case, Israel and next week, Judah. And the chronicler seems to be similarly minded, uh, to focus on the downward spiral, and this phrase comes up, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, again and again as a refrain. Uh, We then transition to the first king of divided, uh, the kingdom is now divided, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam reigned 22 years. I give him an evil rating of 4 out of 4. Um, because he actually becomes the very standard by which all evil is gauged in the kings of Israel after that. You're going to see that. It will say, so-and-so did evil, he walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So-and-so did evil, he continued to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we've got that here, 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, because they have made their wooden images... He will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel to sin. And of course the specific sin of Jeroboam was that he made alternate places of worship. He made priests out of just anybody and everybody, scripture says, of the lowest classes. He seemed to be almost intentionally reenacting the rebellion of Aaron at Mount Sinai when he set up these golden calves. He even said the very same thing, Behold, O Israel, your gods, the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And then he ordained a feast, the very thing that Aaron had done at Sinai's base. And you got this almost insane sense that what Jeroboam was trying to do was act like Aaron and of course he would have been familiar with the fact that Aaron's story did not end at least that instance of it positively. Uh, Then Nadab the fourth king here uh, reigned two years. First Kings chapter 15 verse 26 says and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel to sin. Nadab as the son of Jeroboam the chronicler says he, he was just like his dad. He sinned just like his dad did. Followed by Basha, 24 years, another evil rating of three. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 34. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel to sin. That's the point I was making just a moment ago. The sin of Jeroboam becomes the archetypal sin in the kings of Israel. Idolatry. We're going to see that that becomes the standard by which all kings in Israel and Judah next week are measured. El- uh, Elah, two years uh, and all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 13. Zimri reigned only seven days, but that was sufficient time for him to do evil. He died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel to sin. Omri, 12 years, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. So he gets the four-star rating. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, provoking the God of Israel to anger with their idols. By the way, I think I've put first kings on all of these. They should be second kings. Uh, Nine, Ahab was who we talked about last week. And you notice that I had to extend the scale for Ahab's sake. Ahab gets a five-star rating on a four-star scale. He's just absolutely off the charts. We talked about this last week. Here's the verse. Uh, I know this is 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25, but there was no one like Ahab, no one like Ahab, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and this is what we talked about last week, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, allured him, enticed him, moved him, and we re- I remind you that Jezebel was herself a daughter of the high priest of Baal. This was a new level of low. This was five stars of evil on a four-star system. And even though Jeroboam is the archetypal sin of Israel, idolatry, Ahab becomes the new standard of evil among the kings of Israel. And at this point, we just have to sort of collect ourselves and go, what? how did we get here? How did we get from Abraham, godly Abraham, and godly Isaac, and, and Jacob, and Joseph, and their descendants, how do we end up from Moses and Joshua here? We're going to talk about how that ends up happening in as much as it's understandable. Uh, Number 10 is Ahaziah, the the son of Ahab. He gets a four-star rating because he was the son of Ahab. It says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, for he served Baal and worshipped him. This has to be maximal evil rating because it says he acted just like his dad, who gets the five-star rating. That was Ahab, the worst of all. Just like his mother, Jezebel, who's like this catastrophic uh, uh, person uh, uh, situation that takes place in um, this period of Israel's history, and then he was just like Jeroboam, so he gets the maximal rating. 11 is Joram, he reigns 12 years, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, so he marries uh, 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 the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, 2 Kings 8.18, we're seeing a pattern here. Uh, 12, Jehu, 28 years, I gave him only a two-star rating because he's the one that was actually responsible finally for the death of Jezebel. This woman that had almost single-handedly led Israel astray scared the death out of Elijah and uh, even though he certainly did not do good, he has this one little uh, positive note to his name. He was responsible for the death of Jezebel. It says in 2 Kings chapter 10 verses 29 and 31, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made all Israel to sin. He took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart. Jehu was followed by Jehoaz, so I gave a two and a half star rating. The reason was there's this little text there in 2 Kings chapter 13 where it says that Jehoaz pled with the Lord, he poured his heart out to God because Syria had come against them and it actually says that God answered Jehoaz's prayer. So he has to get a bit of a rating positively, but notice what the overall uh, summary of his life is. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel to sin. He did not part from them, that is to say, from those sins. He was followed by Jehoash, 16 years he reigned, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, you're going to get used to hearing this, who made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Followed by Jeroboam II. Now, this is astonishing that somebody would think to name their son Jeroboam. It's like naming your son Satan. Yeah, this is Matthew. This is Maria. This is Timothy. This is Satan. This is Adolf. It's like, really? Really? This is Edi I Amin. Mean, you know, like, what are you doing? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Surprise, surprise. You basically destined him to that with his name. The son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 24. Are you tired of this yet? Okay, we're going to keep doing it, because I'm trying to create the very same sense that that God would have had, the very same sense that the faithful in Israel would have had, the remnant would have had, like, oh, this again, oh, this again. Oh, this again? Really? This again? Zechariah reigned only six months, sufficient time to get an evil rating of three. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, followed by Shalom, reigned a single month. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led indeed are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. He reigned so short and so little is said about him that the best we can do is find out that in some level he was conspiratorial. So I made a guess and gave him the average of everybody else, gave him an evil rating of three. Uh, Menahem, ten years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. We're getting down toward the end here. P- uh, Pekahiah, two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He too did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. Pekah, twenty years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And finally, Hosea. We come to the last king, the very last king in Israel, reigned only nine years. Astonishingly, the last king gets one of the lowest ratings, two, and it's for this single verse. It says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. And I, I think the point here is very interesting. It seems to me that the point that the historian, the chronicler is making, is that almost every king before him, post-Jeroboam, walked in the footsteps of Jeroboam. I almost called the sermon, In the Footsteps of Jeroboam. And something about Hosea caused him to break, to break from the sins of Jeroboam. It, it, it was not an archetypal idolatry, idolater. Something caused him to break, but it was too much, too little, it was too, too little, rather, too late. And uh, so what we end up with here is with the exception of David, with the sole exception of David, Israel did not have a single good king in 300 years. Okay, now come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is where I ask you to turn to, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And let's remind ourselves of how we got on this path. God foresaw every bit of this, but let's remind ourselves how we ended up here. 1 Samuel Chapter eight. We'll pick it up in verse four. First Samuel, chapter eight, verse four. This is going back hundreds of years. This is going back to the, the, the time when, when Saul would be anointed as the first king of Israel. So we're going back where we're winding the tape now, uh, three centuries to get back to the start of how all this came to be. First Samuel, chapter eight, verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said, look, you are old, you're getting old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected what? Me, that I should not reign over them. Samuel was feeling despondent. He was feeling discouraged. He was feeling dejected and rejected. And God says, hey, listen, this is not about a rejection of Samuel. I share your despondency. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. That they don't want me as a king over them. Verse 18, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me, they have served other gods, they are, so they are doing also. Now watch this. This is interesting. Verse 9. Now, therefore, listen to their voice. Second time he says that. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them. Hundreds of years in advance, before we ever get to Hosea, three centuries before Hosea, God says to Samuel, Samuel, go say to the people, forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Give them a picture, a portrait of what it's going to be like. So Samuel told All the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. And he said, among other things, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will appoint them for his own chariots. And to be his horsemen and some he will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. And some will plow the ground and reap the harvest and make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will make your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves. They, They sound like absolute tyrants which is of course exactly what God is saying. He will give these to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and he will give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and all your donkeys and he will put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Verse 19. After all of that, after all of that preamble, after all of that warning... Astonishingly, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, as an impetuous child might say, who just has to have another piece of cake, has to have two lollies, I want a king. We want a king to be over us. They did not know what they were asking for That we may also be like all the other nations. And remarkably, they were going to become like all the other nations in more than just the monarchy. They would become like the other nations in culture, in religion, in practice, and ultimately in judgment. Verse 21, Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice three times. Just give them what they want, give them what they want, give them what they want, and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. What a remarkable thing that God's punishment of Israel is effectively giving them what they want. We see this in Romans chapter 1, and we've noted this before, where Paul says that the wrath of God is when God gives us over to our decisions. When God gives us over to, God never gives us up but he does give us over to the decisions that we insist on making and the people really, really, really wanted a king, like an impetuous child that really, really, really wants something. And finally, at at times, it can almost be the wise parental decision to say, okay, you think you want this. I know that you don't want this, but I am going to give you what you think you want because I know that when you get what you think you want, it will actually be the worst possible punishment for you. I should say the best possible punishment for you. How did we get to walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Walked in the sins of... How did we get there? Well, we got there because that's exactly where God said this road was going. This train goes to that destination. And I want to say this, beloved. The practical takeaway is so obvious, isn't it? If God doesn't want you to have something, then you don't want it. No, really, you don't. If God doesn't want you to have something, you don't wanted can the church say amen to that right when when God says hey please don't and don't and that's not your best and we often think we're rebelling against God in our own best interest right in our we think that we're looking out for our own best interest Israel thought they knew better than God and I want to say this beloved if the if the message of 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 the kings of Israel and next week of Judah can be synthesized into a single idea it has to be that God never intended for these stories to ever exist There was never supposed to be the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, because there was never supposed to be a king. And at the end of the day, beloved, if we insist on wanting and craving and acquiring what God says is not in our own best interest, we will find that God just might, in his divine wisdom, give us what we think we have to have, and then we will suffer under the consequences of our own choices. If this makes sense, say amen. Okay. Now... Following up with that, because God wants your happiness, your joy, and your fulfillment more than you do. This is one of the things that we emphasize again and again and again in our youth Sabbath school classes, that yes, you enjoy being happy, and you enjoy having fun, and you enjoy being fulfilled, and all of that is true, but God wants your happiness more than you want your happiness. God wants your joy more than you want your joy, and God wants your fulfillment more than you want it for yourself. To state the obvious, God sees what you don't see, and he knows what you don't know. The people were just sure that they wanted this. A good example could be a, a, a teenager right now who is absolutely convinced that this relationship is in his or her best interest. I've just got to have this relationship. But the parents are saying, I don't, I don't think this is in your best interest. The parents see what you don't see. They know you better than you know yourself. I know that that's going to strike a lot of teenagers as a surprise. But the truth of the matter is is that a good, responsible parent who has been godly and observational of his or her children, th- they will assess the direction of their children, the character of their children, and, to some degree, the direction and character of their uh, desired partner. And I know that this is going to be painful for a lot of the young people to hear, who I should be speaking this way since most of you sit over here. If your parents are giving you cautions about somebody, you you need to ask yourself, hey, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's something to this and how many of us know the story or some of us even in this room have lived the story of getting that boyfriend that we just thought we wanted or getting that girlfriend that we just thought we wanted and then we ended up with heartbreak and a story to tell or worse yet, you don't just have to end up with heartbreak, you can end up with far more than that, right? That's just a small example of how, no, I've got to have him, I've got to have her, right? When teenagers get to a certain age and when we get to a certain age, God's like, okay, give them what they want. There's no point in, in compelling them, in forcing them to do... No, no, give them what they want. Beloved, God sees what we don't see and he knows what we don't know. Now, come with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. This is our second major passage we're going to go to. 2 Kings chapter 17. And 2 Kings chapter 17 brings us to the final demise and captivity of Israel. As we've mentioned we'll deal with Judah next week and I'm going to read most of this from the NIV because it's just a little clearer in this particular translation. 2nd Kings chapter 17 we'll pick it up in verse 1. 2nd Kings chapter 17 verse 1. I'm going to read most of this chapter with some commentary. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal or, or servant, and he paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him, put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, that's the land of Israel, marched against Samaria, laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, watch this, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Goza, on the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. That's it. Second Kings chapter 17 verse 8 tells you the inevitable consequence of pursuing what you think you want and God giving you the desires of your heart. They end up in Assyrian captivity. They end up in this, as the texts indicate, this strange intrigue of sort of play and counterplay between uh, the king of Egypt and the king of Assyria, and, and Israel's just a little fish in all of this, and they're, you know, trying to seek refuge here rather than seeking refuge in the Lord, and originally they had begun by paying tribute to Assyria, but, but they also hedged their bets by keeping the king of Egypt, and when the, uh, you know, sort of on the side, and when the king of Assyria finds out that the king of Egypt is also being kept, you know, held on sort of retainer uh, he says I'm done with these people marches in takes O'Shea and Israel captive now of course this doesn't mean that he literally led every single Israelite back to Assyria he would have slaughtered many and taken probably the leaders the wealthy the influencers the 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 the, the wealthiest and most influential families would have been taken into captivity many would have been killed and a remnant remained we know a remnant remained because we're going to see that later in the prophets the point is is that it's over the dream has officially died for Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17. The king of Assyria comes in and it's over. Verse 7, I love the way the NIV puts this. There's just a sense of finality here. There's a sense of conclusion. All of this took place because all of this, not just this little section, but all of this, all of this going back to Samuel, or going back to Samuel, back to Saul, back to Solomon, back to David, all of this and all of the subsequent kings that came after them took place why because the israelites had sinned against yahweh their god who had brought them out of the land of egypt reminding them of the deliverance of god under the power of pharaoh the king of egypt they worshiped other gods they followed the practices of the nations that the lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of israel had introduced blah, blah, blah. Rather than being the spiritual as well as military and governmental leaders of Israel, they themselves have become some of the foremost proponents and participants in the various idolatrous practices. You might remember going all the way back to to the initial uh, occupation of the land, God had said to Joshua, when you find one of their worship places, their temples, their high places, we'll talk about that next week in Judah, when you find those places, destroy them. I don't want there to be any curiosity, any any inquiry about how these people worship because as we have already noted, part of their worship involved, and it comes up several times in the king's, child sacrifice. And God is like, this is so abominable, so deplorable, so disgusting and repulsive to me. When you find their places of worship, don't inquire, oh, yeah, this is interesting, this altar, this statue. What statue is this a God of? And, and who, what, what God did this do? Don't make inquiry about them and their ways religious. Uh, destroy these things and drive the people from the land. Because God knew, and this is a fascinating little insight, that even the salvation of the Canaanites themselves. Now, this is a giant irony. But the salvation of the Canaanites themselves to some significant degree hinged on them being pushed out of their own land and then later being acquired by the beauty of Israel. Of course, this dream never eventuates. We never get anywhere near that because Israel themselves become incorporated into the very practices, idolatrous practices of the nations that they were supposed to displace. And and one of the other ironies of it, look at verse 9, they thought they were doing all of this in secret. The Israelites secretly, secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From the watchtower to the fortified cities, they built themselves high places in all their towns. And I suppose this also goes without saying, as I mentioned just a moment ago, to state the obvious. God sees what we don't see and he knows what we don't know. You don't do anything in secret from God. Can the church say amen? Yes, secretly. Secretly. There is no such thing as a secret from God. You can pretend with your parents, you can pretend with your spouse, you can pretend with your pastor, you can pretend with those that that are around you in your various spheres, but you can't pretend with God. We can present ourselves as we're not to those around us, but you can only present yourselves as you are to God. There's no fooling God, there's no doing something in secret with God. And yet amidst all of this apostasy and all of this downward moral and spiritual spiral, the people were still operating under the absurd delusion that they were doing all of this secretly or in a clandestine way. God knows. He knows the web browser history even if you put clear history. So it doesn't clear from God's record. God knows. God knows about the affair even if, 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 if your spouse doesn't know about the affair. God knows about the misspent f- finances even if you're hiding it from somebody else. God knows about the way you're sneaking out with your you know, teenage boyfriend or teenage girlfriend and doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing even if your parents don't know. God knows. God knows. They did it secretly. It's almost as if the, uh, the Chronicle here is putting this in, in parenthesis. Secretly. Verse 10, they set up sacred stones and Asherah poles under every high hill and under every spreading tree, at every high place. He's obviously for, uh, clearly there wasn't an idol under every tree. He's, he's speaking here with hyperbole. He wants you to know that this was ubiquitous. Right? That, 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 that there, there was idolatry just saturative in Israel, every tree and every high place. He goes on to say, That's the high place. They burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols though the Lord had said, don't do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I command your ancestors to obey and that I delivered uh, to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. That sounds like 300 years ago when God had said, you really don't want what you think you want. No, we want a king. They would not listen. They were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant. We've heard precious little about the covenant since we've turned to the kings. And that's because there's precious little to say about it. It's an uninterrupted succession of covenant breaking on the part of God's covenant people. They followed worthless idols themselves. I love this in the NIV. Look at this. They rejected the decrees and the covenant. I'm in verse 15. He had made with their ancestors and the statutes that he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. I just had to put that up. I thought, what an astonishing thing to say. They followed worthless idols and became themselves worthless. If you serve violent gods it's no surprise that you will become violent. We see we see prima facie evidence of this in the world today where Isis and others like them are blowing themselves up in the name of their god. Right? I don't believe, by the way, that that is a fair representation of the Quranic God, the Islamic God. I don't think that's a fair representation of Allah, but that's for another time. Whether you think it is or isn't, here's the point. Whatever the picture of God is in the mind of the person that's about ready to blow themselves up, that picture must be in some way consistent with the action that's about ready to flow from that picture. Right? So, so if you're committing an act of violence, wanton, uh, 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 indiscreet violence against people who are innocent and frankly ambivalent toward your cause or even unaware of your cause i mean your god must be consistent with this action right if if and as many of the canaanite deities were these you know massive sensual it was like this wicked combination of extreme sensuality and extreme violence right everything from you know massive pagan orgies and then also offering your children up i mean the point is is that it says that the people began to worship these gods here it says as the chronicler is drawing the history of israel to a terrible sad and pathetic close it says man they worshiped worthless idols and they became worthless beloved if you have a sensual picture of god you will become sensual if you have a violent picture of God, you will become violent. We, we become like, the, we make God in our own image unless it is the true God, the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People not only look like their dogs, they also end up looking like their idols. And I thought I'd throw this in. Maybe some of you have seen this picture before. Right? You've heard that, man, this is just amazing. People end up looking like their dogs, right? Well, God's complaint here in 2 Kings chapter 17 is that people end up looking like they're idols. Why is God so dead-sent against idolatry? Why is God not more culturally uh, uh, broad? Why isn't he, you know, open? Well, the bottom line is this. Idolatry is insulting to God and it's demeaning to human beings, and here's why. God says, don't make, uh, don't make a, a, a piece of, of metal or of wood or of stone to be like me. He says, this is an insult. I'm the living God. In fact, when he, when he appeared to Moses there atop Mount Sinai, he said, remind the children of Israel that they didn't see a form. They didn't see a shape. They saw nothing. They can't make anything to be like me. But it's not just that God is being petty. It's not like he's saying, oh, that doesn't look good. You know, you did, my nose is better than that. That's, it's not that God is being petty. God's primary complaint is that he says, hey, listen. When you bow down to something that you yourself have made, you're insulting yourself. This is an insult to you because here's the great, great punchline to the idolatry of the Old Testament that God has, in fact, imaged himself. God has imaged himself on the earth. And God has imaged himself in human beings. Right? God has not imaged himself in stone. He's not imaged himself in wood. He's not imaged himself in plaster or some other sculpture that's to be bowed down to. No, that thing, God says, was fashioned by you. The thing that's truly in my image, the thing that was made to be free, to love, to grow, to to dream, to to, to have all of the great experiences that, that we come to associate with humanity, he says, it's you. You're the thing that's in my image. And when you bow down to an idol... Yeah, I find that insulting, but, but I find it hugely insulting to you. And so the, the, the chronicler here, as he's drawing the history of Israel to a close, he's like, man, these people spent generations worshiping worthless idols, and eventually they became worthless. This is the simplest way I know to say this. First, Yahweh became just another God, and then Israel became just another nation. That's the, that's the way it worked. Israel was never special in the sense of being elite or of being better or of any other such thing. Israel was only special in the sense that they were a conduit for the goodness of God. That's it. I've said this before I'll say it again God did not just give the Sabbath to Israel He gave the Sabbath through Israel He didn't just give the sanctuary to Israel He gave the sanctuary truth of God's love and goodness through Israel not just the, the, the law to Israel but the law through Israel but when Israel forsakes the only thing that makes them special they're not biologically special more better they're not ethnically better they're not aesthetically more pleasing than the nations that were around them the only thing that made them the remnant was their God and when their God God just got lumped in with all of the other Canaanite deities, when he became just another God, then God said, okay, you can be just another nation. A nation subject to judgment, a nation uh, that no longer possesses the unique protective capacity that he had promised to give them. The whole thing boils down to basically this portrait. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, who I gave a four-star rating of evil, says this, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And notice what I've italicized here. And walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. Jezebel and Ahab. This is what's happening. The, the, the father sets the tone and the children walk that way. It is, it's, it's unusual, not impossible, but unusual for a child to depart from the basic trajectory of their parents. It can happen. But it doesn't doesn't often happen and it doesn't easily happen. And what we see here, uh, and many people are troubled in the Ten Commandments when it says that God visits the iniquity of the children upon the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. God is not arbitrarily imposing something here, genetically or otherwise. God is saying, hey, look, if you behave in a certain way, there's a very good chance that genetically and environmentally your children will behave the same way. Abusers raise abusers, alcoholics raise alcoholics. Right? Dishonest people raise dishonest people. Now, praise God. Can somebody say amen? It does not have to be this way. Can somebody say amen? I never met my biological dad. He decided to skip town when I was three weeks old. And I decided that by the grace of God, I was going to be a great father. Now, I think, I don't know if I'm achieving that, but at least I'm around. My physical body is in the presence of my children's physical body, and I love them, and I pray with them, and I take care of them. It's something my father didn't do for me. So this familial cyclical curse can be broken, but in Israel, it was basically unbroken. And Ahaziah, in many ways, uh, summarizes the whole story. You have Ahab, who was the chiefest and the worst of all the kings of Israel, and when it introduces Ahaziah, it says, oh, he was like his dad, and he was like his mom, I've said before, I'll just say this briefly here, we send our children sometimes to others hoping that they'll be made right. Whether it's a Christian school, hoping that our kids will get straightened out at a Christian school, or we send them to uh, uh, like, even church, oh man, I hope they get it figured out. At the end of the day, the number one influencer for good or for bad, or for religion or going against religion, is the home. Can the church say amen to this? It it doesn't mean that they can't make a break. It is occasional. I do see situations where the children excel the basic spirituality and and, uh, uh, piety of their parents. But that's the exception. Generally, the parent sets the tone and then the children read from the parent. And if that happens generationally, it can be an exceedingly positive thing or it can be an exceedingly negative thing. And in the case of Israel, it becomes an exceedingly negative thing. And Ahaziah absolutely typifies this. You could summarize it in this simple statement, like father, like son. And in the Christmas season, I want to direct your mind to the one who was truly like his father. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the father. This is my beloved son, was said at Jesus' baptism, in whom I am well pleased I love this from Matthew chapter 2 now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the day of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they said where is he who has been born been born king of the Jews that is to say king of Israel where's the king of Israel right now this is not this is not positive language You line up all of the kings of Israel, and you have only one chance at a good king. That's David, and I remind you that prior to his conversion, he was a rapist and a murderer. So the bar is very low, exceedingly low, and yet here the wise men come and say, where's the king of Israel? This is not exactly the kind of thing that foreigners would want to know, oh, another king of Israel. This isn't good news. Watch this. For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. We celebrated this last night in the Christmas program. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, Oh, he'll be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Watch this. For thus it is written in the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, not Israel, by the way, Judah. We'll talk about that next week. Are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a, what? A A ruler who will shepherd, who will care for, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Such a beautiful story. Jesus Christ is the true king of Israel and of the world. And at this time, I want to invite Joshua to come up. Joshua is going to sing us a beautiful song titled, Lift Him High. And in a remarkable way, and in an unforeseen way, certainly by me, up until this week, The tragedy of the kings of Israel actually lays the groundwork for the Christmas story. The tragedy of the kings of Israel lays the groundwork for the Christmas story. And the Christmas story is not just a nice little innocuous tale about a little boy born in Bethlehem's manger with no place to lay their head. No, this is the king of Israel. But as the story unfolds, and we'll unpack this in far greater detail next year, he's not just the king of Israel, he's the king of the world. Can the church say amen? That's the Christmas story. Jesus himself said, and I, if I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to me. I don't find myself drawn by the kings of Israel in the Chronicles and the kings. I find myself repulsed by them. But the true king of Israel won't repulse. He will draw, he will attract, and he will woo us to him. Jesus, I want to close with this. Jesus, king of kings, lord of lords, does not rule by the strength of his nature but by the beauty of his character. And in a really awesome way, Jesus is, as it were, elected. We elect him to be our king, to be our God. He's king of kings and Lord of lords, but whether or not you will be his subject is entirely up to you. And the choice I want to make today, and I hope you do as well, is to lift him up.
1: For God so loved the world That he gave his only son And through believing we might live eternally For he came to save the world and not condemn And if I be lifted high Savior said I draw all men to me, so lift him high. High, 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 high and lift him high, so lift him high, 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 high and lift him high we were for. Our first parents marked us with the stain of sin. And not a good thing from our own hands can we bring All these filthy rags we are clothed within. But I hear my savior call My righteousness is sufficient for thee, so lift him high. Him high, 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 high. Lift him high. Behold what kind of love that we should be called the sons of God. So won't you tell me what kind of people we should be? Take up our cross, make our lives an offering. Love not the world or all that it contains. Let our witness bring glory to his name. Lift him high, 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 high. I lift him high
0: Beloved, Jesus is not just another God. Can you say amen? This is an amazing portrait and picture of God. It's a picture that could not have been invented. It could not have been made up. It could not have been conceived. The idea that, that God would become a man and the, the gospel story is uninventable. And this God, who is not just another God, wants your family to not just be another family. He wants your life not just to be another life. He wants this church not just to be another church. He wants your school to not just be another school. And your marriage not just to be another marriage. God wants to impart Himself into these things. He wants to impart Himself into your life into your home into your marriage I tell you beloved Jesus is not just any other God He is beautiful He is awesome He is merciful He is gracious He is amazing He is uninventable and today that same Jesus calls to us and says you're not doing that in secret you're not uh, that's not happening in secret break from whatever that familial or cultural or, or personal cycle is break away from that and come to me I will draw all peoples to myself. Nothing, nothing can, can draw us in terms of strength or power or might. God doesn't draw us with his power. He draws us with the beauty of his character. The kings of Israel had power. They had influence. They had position and even to some degree prestige. But they never had the heart of the people. And they certainly didn't have the heart of God. So today the Christmas story comes home to us. Christmas story comes home to us not just Jesus as king in some generic sense but Jesus as my king Jesus as my God how many of you today want to say with me Jesus is not just another God Jesus is my God Amen Father in heaven we want to lift Jesus high and we want to do that with our life The way that we talk, the way that we speak, the way that we spend our money, the way that we love, the way that we raise our children, the way that we respond to our parents, the way that we forgive. Father, the way that we communicate that life is about more than the acquisition of material things, that life is about more than pettiness and gossip. Father, we want our lives to be bigger and more meaningful than that. We want our lives to be everything that you've created them to be. We want to be the best versions of ourselves. And Father, we have at times been just sure that what we wanted was in our own best interest. But then we heard that whisper, that still small voice that said, No, nah, this, this isn't best for you. But we put it away. And we put it away. And Father, I pray that today for myself and for everyone here, that we will not want anything for ourselves that you wouldn't want for us. And Father, we pray that you will help us to see the beauty of your character as manifested in Jesus as we are infilled by your spirit. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say.